Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to the show and welcome to Season 7. Who would believe it, Mikey? I, mean, I am thrilled and I'm, I'm tickled too, but I'll just keep that to myself. <laughs> All right, so today you'll want to talk about spies. Now, of course, we've had spies throughout the centuries, every age, every civilization, haven't they? But <laughs> you reckon you've got two standout, particular howler-type spies for us today? Mate, absolute dead set howlers. Okay, first off, I'm going to talk about the First World War. And not Matahari. That's a whole other episode, Matahari. Yeah. I'm going to talk about a, a person you mightn't have heard about, Heinrich Albert. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got to say at the start, Heinrich Albert, well, he looked like a spy. <laughs> he was a large, well-built bloke. He had an imposing moustache. Yep. He even had a few Habsburg-style sabre scars on his right cheek. Okay. He was one of Germany's key American operatives during the First World War. Now, the guy was a lawyer and a commercial attaché. In fact, his official diplomatic position was financial advisor to the German ambassador to America, Count Baron von Bernstoff. Right. But he was integral to the Kaiser's attempts to sway American opinion about the war, as well as masterminding key sabotage operations on the American docks and its industrial infrastructure. Right, because we talked about that in that earlier episode, didn't we? How the Germans were desperate to keep either the US out or at least neutral. Particularly, they wanted to stop them sending over arms to support the Allies. But as we were saying in that episode about their dealings with Mexico, Mm. they weren't afraid of a bit of skullduggery to hedge their bets as well. So while they were telling the Americans they were all neutral, they are also quite keen to spike their guns, as it were. Yes, indeed. But here's the thing. Heinrich Albert, and he was one of the main gun spikers, he was also, a, well, he was a notorious tight ass <laughs> and a bit of a buffoon. And he brought the whole operation crashing down because he was just too mean to spring for a single cab fare. Okay. Okay. So it happened on a New York afternoon, 4 o'clock, July 24th, 1915, to be precise, mm-hmm. when a hapless Heinrich Albert was in a panic state on the corner of 6th Avenue and 52nd Street. Mm-hmm. See, he decided that instead of spending well, basically a dollar on a cab ride uptown, He'd take a streetcar. Mm. Now, whilst on this journey, he'd lost possession of his trusty briefcase. Uh. A bulging briefcase that contained all the details, the names, the plots and contacts for over $40 million worth of propaganda and sabotage that he'd been orchestrating in complete defiance of what you said before about Germany's supposed neutrality with the United States. Right, but now he's lost this briefcase and left all those undercover secrets on the streetcar. Precisely. So he knows he's in trouble, and he does what any self-respecting German undercover agent in New York would do. He rushes over to the German club, where he quickly gets hold of the military attaché, Captain Franz von Papen, mm-hmm. and Captain Karl von Boyard, a German naval aide. Mm. Now, now, this brain's trust, mate, they're more than aware that just how sensitive the contents of Albert's briefcase was. Right. It'd be fodder for the anti-German sentiment in the US, 
and we also tipped the hand to the American Secret Services that there was, in fact, a, a ring of German spies and saboteurs operating the states. Right. But most worryingly, and I'll, I'll get to this a bit later on, it would expose Albert and a guy called Captain Franz von Rintelens, bogus, wait for this, Bridgeport Projectile Company, mm. which had been surreptitiously buying up and destroying American munitions that were destined for the Allies on the Western Front. Right. So he's lost his briefcase. The stakes are incredibly high. So they quickly formulated a plan. A pretty cutting plan. Well, actually, no, they, they placed an ad in the classifieds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> on the 27th of July, this stunning piece of spycraft appeared in the pages of the New York Evening Telegram. Right. I'm quote, lost. On Saturday, on the 3.30 Harlem elevated train at the 50th Street Station, brown leather bag, containing documents, delivered to G.H. Hoffman, 5E 47th Street, against a $20 reward. <laughs> so hang on, the briefcase that contains information for $40 million worth of government espionage, and they're offering 20 bucks for someone to hand it all back in. Um, I'm guessing no one came forward. No one came forward, mate, and there's a good reason for that. The bag was already in the possession of the American authorities. Ah. The Bureau of Investigation. Of oh, the precursors of the FBI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been on to Albert for quite some time. And for them, it was an absolute treasure trove of information. For one agent and, and the future chief of the BOI, it was a complete godsend. There's a guy called William J. Flynn. Mm. Now, now, he'd been frustrated for months. He knew the Germans were up to some serious acts of sabotage and influence peddling. But cautious superiors had limited his activities just to following errand boys and hunting down some bizarre racket where bums from the Bowery were being employed as stooges for the creation of fake passports. Okay. Not exactly the high-stakes espionage he was hoping for. However, after the sinking of the Lusitania in May 1915, things got decidedly more proactive from the BOI, to say the least. Right, yes, of course, the sinking of the Lusitania. Yeah, it changes everything. Now, one of the prominent Germans the BOI had been tailing was a guy called George Sylvester Weyrich, mm. the editor of the deeply pro-German newspaper for expats and German descendants, with the decidedly unimaginative title of The Fatherland. Okay. So, on July the 24th, a BOI agent, a guy by the name of Frank Burke, he decided to take the afternoon off. It was hot. He was going to go watch a ball game when he was contacted by a fellow agent, a guy called Bill Houghton. Mm. Now, Bill Houghton, he'd been trailing that editor, Weirich, I was talking about, to the offices of the Hamburg American line. Right. It was a suspected German front for naval activity. And he suggested that Burke join him just in case there were other operatives that would come out of the, what he was considering to be a covert meeting. Other operatives such as your man Heinrich Albert, you mean? You got it in one. So Burke goes along. And sure enough, these two Germans, they come out of the offices and head towards town and onto the city trolley car. With Burke on their trail. Right. Now, Weirich, he's not going as far as Albert. And when he gets up to jump off, a young woman takes his seat right next to Albert who by this stage was, was apparently so absorbed in a book he was reading that he almost missed his stop at 50th Street. And he shouted to the guard of the trolley car to stop. And he leapt to his feet, ran off the trolley car, leaving his precious briefcase behind him. Uh-huh. Now, the young woman who just sat down, she called out to Albert, who by this stage was standing on the platform, that he'd forgotten the case. At this point, Burke, the agent... He could hardly believe his luck. Right. He calmly said, no, she was mistaken and that the briefcase actually belonged to him. Ooh. Albert is in a panic. So he tries to reboard the streetcar, but and this is where he gets a bit slapstick. Apparently, his way back home was blocked by a rather large woman asking directions from one of the guards. And then it gets even more ridiculous. 
Burke ran out of the streetcar with Albert in hot pursuit. Mm-hmm. The, the American then jumped on to the open-air section of another trolley car. And when its conductor asked him what was going on, Burke calmly answered that he was being pursued by a lunatic <laughs> who had just caused a massive scene on the streetcar he had just escaped from. When the conductor turned around, he saw the hapless Albert waving frantically and pursuing the streetcar. And so he took Burke for his word, because he immediately informed the driver to pass through the next corner without stopping, leaving a desperate and despondent Albert. Meanwhile, <laughs> Burke had looked inside the briefcase and he immediately grasped the magnitude of his incredibly opportunistic find. Mm. He contacted Flynn, the guy I was talking about before, yep. who in turn got in touch with the Secretary of the Treasury, William G. McAdoo. Mm. Now, McAdoo was not completely sure how to proceed, so he passed the relevant information right up the food chain to President Woodrow Wilson. Right. Wilson here does something interesting. Instead of making dozens, as he could of middle-of-the-night arrests, he uses the contents of the briefcase for what can only be described as a public relations coup. Well, that's right, isn't it? Because we were saying in that other app that Wilson, he'd been elected as the candidate that would keep America out of the war, hadn't he? But of course, as you say, with the sinking of the Lusitania, things had changed drastically. And Wilson, if you look at his actions at this stage, yeah, he really isn't afraid to whip up a bit of anti-German fervour. Exactly, mate. So Flynn and McAdoo, they begin leaking selected papers from Albert's hefty stash to the editor of a a Democrat-backed newspaper, the New York World. The editor was a guy called Frank I. Cobb. Mm. Now, with the one proviso that Cobb would not reveal how he got hold of the information. Mm. So on the 15th of August, Heinrich Albert woke up to find his name on the front page of the world, as the New Yorkers called the paper, and not just the front page. The world ran three whole pages describing his role, from organising dock strikes to sabotage to funding Virick's paper, The Fatherland. Ah. And, mate, the hits just keep on coming. Over the next few days, the world exposed the Bridgeport Projectile Company scam. Mm. And I mentioned that earlier. It had siphoned off and destroyed nearly five million pounds of gunpowder and two million shells that were desperately needed by the British and the French. Right. For a solid week, the newspaper turned Heinrich Albert into the poster boy for dangerous German espionage, Mm. which was somewhat accurate, although they did leave out the part where he left his briefcase on a trolley car because he was too stingy to spring for a cab. (laughs) Now, Albert, he issued a 2,500-word reply. It also omitted the whole pathetic trolley car incident. Strangely enough... He was never actually charged. Wilson and Flynn, and quite rightly, they assumed that his actions, once brought to light, well, his effectiveness as a spy was pretty much neutered. And Albert was quietly expelled back to Berlin when America entered the war in 1917. (laughs) Which I'm guessing pretty much spelt the end for his career. No, actually, mate, over the next few years, he gets promoted up the chain in the German civil service. Okay, folks, welcome back. Today we're talking about spies, particularly howler spies, but Paulie, you've got one from a little bit earlier on. Well, I thought, you know, if we're going to talk about spies, I'd have to throw Christopher Marlowe into the mix. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Now, he is um, a bit of a hero of mine um, because, you know, although more attention has been paid to him in recent time, for the most part, he is always dismissed as a bit of a Shakespeare sidekick, isn't he? Yeah. Whereas the reality, I think, it's that Marlowe, as much as the bard, who should really be held aloft in many ways as the founder of Elizabethan drama. Certainly he was the first major playwright of his era to use blank verse in his works, and, you know, with Tamerlane the Great, Jew of Malta, Dr Faustus, Edward II, he has left us some of the finest plays ever written. But he has also got something of a reputation, hasn't he? And a lot of that's tied in with this idea that he might have been a spy. 
Now, Paul, I studied Marlowe at university. You're right, great playwright. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. He's a bit older than Shakespeare, right? <laughs> well, yes and no. In terms of age, he's actually not much older at all. Yeah, Marlowe's born in Canterbury in England in 1564. Yeah, the son of a upmarket shoemaker and a clergyman's daughter. And he's baptised in February on the 26th. So he's actually, you know, if you take what's usually considered to be Shakespeare's birthday, he's actually only two months older. Oh, right. But the big difference, Mike, is that Marlowe seems to have hit his stride much earlier. And that's why a lot of commentators often presume the age gap. You see, unlike Shakespeare, Marlowe got off to a flying start. You know, he spent his university years at Cambridge, at Corpus Christi College, and it may well be that it was here his secret agent, Life as a Spy, began. It was a bit like a proto-Burgess Philby and Maclean. Now, obviously, yeah, records from this time are pretty scarce, but it is clear that he frequently took leave from his Cambridge studies, and he nearly didn't even get his degree. It's obvious that something was up, and there have been rumours that he actually converted to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism at this time, and was living a secret kind of life that way. But I think it's quite telling that when it finally does come to the time for him to graduate, the Privy Council itself, you know, the highest body in the land, actually intervenes on his behalf, and they commend him for his good service and make a plea directly to Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, to make sure that he's awarded his degree. And all this seems to have been pushed, Mikey, by Sir Francis Walsingham, who's another Cambridge man, and of course the Queen's spymaster and head of her intelligence service. Yeah, I know that name. He's part of that group of ministers with William Cecil that we talked about in the lead-up to the gunpowder plot. Precisely. So even at this early stage, everything is not quite what meets the eye. In fact, once Marlowe's got his degree and set out to London to make his fortune, there's soon a whole new set of circumstances that also don't stack up. You see, as a would-be playwright, someone who spent all his life as a student, his income should have been minuscule, like Shakespeare's was at the beginning of his career. And you've got to remember, just as the bard was the son of a glove maker, Marlowe was the son of a shoemaker. Their financial situations shouldn't have been too different. Yet while Shakespeare was scrambling around trying to make ends meet, we've got evidence that Marlowe was actually living the high life, with records showing how lavishly he spent money on food and drink, hanging out in all the right places with all the right people. People like Walter Raleigh and all the courtiers, and what I think is quite an intriguing underground club called the School of Night. So you're saying he's financing this lifestyle with spy money? Well, spy or not, he certainly seems to have backing and he certainly launches onto the literary scene in London with a big splash because almost before you know it in 1587 he's wowing the audiences with his first big hit Tamerlane. In fact in a remarkably short amount of time he becomes England's number one playwright number one hit and you've soon got some of those most quoted lines ever to come on the stage you know the face that launched a thousand ships now nah, Dr Faustus and there is no sin but ignorance ah the Jew of Malta so, man, if he was a spy, and OK, I'm going to grant you this, if he was a spy, what sort of missions would he have been on? Well, unfortunately, Mikey, we don't exactly know and probably never will, but it does seem that he travels a lot, particularly to the Low Countries, and he is arrested in 1592 for his alleged involvement in the distribution of counterfeit coins in the Netherlands. Because you've got to remember at this stage, Mikey, Elizabeth in England, it's one of Europe's major Protestant bastions, you know, and it's always on the continent trying to stir things up against the Catholic forces of the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. And you're saying Marlowe's not just involved in this, he's actually caught and arrested. Yes, he is arrested, but again, he's sent to be dealt with 
behind the scenes. Yeah, he's sent to the Lord Treasurer, and suddenly there's no charge and no imprisonment. So someone really is, yeah, behind the scenes pulling strings for Marlowe. Look, we can't be sure it was Walsingham and his spying. And as I said before, there is a counter theory that this is all mixed up in religion, because in 1593, Marlowe did write a manuscript extrapolating on what he considered to be the inconsistencies in the Bible. Oh. And in the same year, he actually falls under suspicion not just of being a Catholic, but much worse, a heretic, with some more evidence coming from Marlowe's roommate, Thomas Kidd, another Elizabethan dramatist. Oh, the Spanish tragedy. Thomas Kidd, the Spanish tragedy, exactly. Well, as part of all this intrigue, he's actually arrested and tortured into giving evidence against Marlowe, and then Marlowe's arrested for the crime of being an atheist, the penalty for which, under Elizabeth, don't forget, you know, should have been being burnt at the stake. But again, somehow, he gets released, this time on the condition that he reports each day to a court officer. I'm seeing a pattern here. It looks like someone's got his back. Well, it would do, Mikey, but by May, it seems, 1593, things begin to spiral. So Marlowe, he's aged 29 now, and he goes for a dinner with a certain Ingram Fritzer, um, who's supposedly another secret government employee, in a lodging place in Deptford. So the story goes, a fight breaks out between the two men, and supposedly it's said to be over the bill. <laughs> and during the fight, Marlowe gets stabbed, stabbed to death by this guy Fritzer. Stabbed over a bill. Like, come on, that's a bit extreme. <laughs> right, and most modern scholars do believe that this story is just a bit of a smokescreen, with the reality being that Marlowe had crossed one line too many, made one too many enemies, and Fritzer, together with a couple of other government agents, he was actually deliberately sent to Deptford as paid assassins with only one intention. But surely there was an inquest. Yes, there was an inquest, Mikey, held after Marlowe's death, but it seems by that stage the powers of B had swung into action because the inquest concludes that Fritzer had acted in self-defence and he was pardoned. And Marlowe was no more. Yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Look, there are other conspiracy theories maintaining that Marlowe feigned the whole thing and lived a double life to a ripe old age. But the reality, much more likely, is that Christopher Marlowe, one of England's finest playwrights, was buried in an unmarked grave in the churchyard of St Nicholas in Deptford that evening. Pretty much at what if it hadn't been for all this secret agent skullduggery? I mean, what should have been the peak of his career? Right. But... <laughs> and this is what really interests me about Marlowe. Like we said, he's virtually the same age as Shakespeare. But in terms of literary accomplishments, he was light years ahead at this early stage of their careers. You know, he's writing Tamburlaine and Dr Faustus, while Shakespeare is still learning the ropes with things like Two Gentlemen of Verona or Henry VI. Uh, not one of his best plays. <laughs> yeah, or Titus Idonicus. So for me, the most telling part of this story is not just that had Marlowe lived, we probably would have been left, you know, another half a dozen, perhaps even a dozen more masterpieces. But, and this is the real mind blower, if Shakespeare instead of Marlowe had died that year in 1593, or even if both of them had died at the same time, Marlowe would now be celebrated as the greatest playwright of the Elizabethan era, and Shakespeare would be not much more than a curious footnote. <laughs> All right, folks, so there we are. We'll finish off, as promised, with Mikey's second howl over spy. But this time we're in France. We've had the French Revolution and we're moving into the Napoleonic period. Yes, Paul, and I'd better warn everyone at the start, this is not a tale for the faint-hearted. <laughs> 
This is the gruesome tale of Therese. Ah. What we do know was he was born into a poor French farming family around about 1770. Now, he first achieved notoriety when at the age of 17, he consumed his own weight in beef. Mm. The only people more astonished than the local villagers were his poverty-stricken parents, who upon realising they could never afford to feed the kid, threw him out of the house. Now, Terrea realised he had this dubious talent of being able to consume vast amounts of foods as well as inanimate objects. And he made his way in the world by touring the provinces of France, eating whatever he was challenged to eat, and often ending his show by, I hate to say this, I said it was a gruesome tale, consuming a few live animals. Mm. Now, we don't actually know his name. He, like Madonna, was simply known by the lone moniker of Terrea, derived from the French phrase, boom, boom, Terrea. Meaning a loud explosion or a loud fart. Ah. And this was probably in reference to his prodigious belching and farting. Ah. See, apart from that, unlike some other gluttons, and there were touring gluttons in Europe at the time, he was of normal proportions with wispy blonde hair and a, apparently a rather large mouth that framed a motley scattering of rotten teeth. <laughs> in fact, the only way you knew you were in the presence of Terrier was, well, um, his smell. Ah. In fact, the London Medical and Physical Journal wrote an article about him. And they stated, Constantly covered in sweat, and from his body a vapour arose, mm. sensible to the sight, and more so to the smell. They then go on to observe, He often stank to such a, a degree that he could not be endured within a distance of 20 paces. Mm. Okay. He enlisted in the French army on the outbreak of the Revolutionary Wars. Right. Where, not surprisingly, he found the sparse rations unbearable, and was eventually hospitalised. Now, it was in this hospital that he would meet a doctor with whom he would collaborate on one of the strangest incidents in the history of espionage. Mm. It was at the Salts Military Hospital that the rumours of his eating abilities circulated around the resident surgeons. A display was organised, and Therese sat down to eat a meal that would have normally fed 15 labourers, <laughs> along with 15 gallons of milk, and here's where it gets really weird, a cat, a few puppies, some lizards, and a snake. Ooh. He was said to have swallowed all of them whole without chewing, Look, I know this is somewhat bizarre and unbelievable, but many of his demonstrations were documented by leading physicians at the time. Hmm. Look, even allowing for some degree of exaggeration, they're still pretty weird. But how does that make him a spy? Well, Paulie, present at these demonstrations was a Monsieur Corville. Now, he was considered to be the most prominent surgeon of the day, and quite frankly, Corville was fascinated by Therese. And after observing him for a few months, Corville comes up with a pretty diabolical plan. As he saw it... Terrier could swallow pretty much anything and mm. then pass it without suffering any ill effects. So why not use him to pass a secret message? Ah. So Corville placed a document in a small wooden box which Terrier faithfully swallowed <laughs> and in due course passed without damaging him or the box. A wooden box? A wooden box. Look, another demonstration was done shortly afterwards at the French Army headquarters and it said that Napoleon himself was there to witness the event. And it worked again. And as such, an incredibly stupid plan was hatched. They were going to use Therese as a courier to get a message to a French colonel who was being held in a Prussian fortress. Mm. Now, firstly, Therese, um, how can I say this politely? He was a bit thick, mate. <laughs> that London Medical and Physical Journal described him as almost devoid of force or ideas. Plus, he spoke absolutely no German. Right. He's barely a few kilometres into enemy territory before he's captured and beaten. <laughs> The Prussians, for some reason, they figure out what's going on and they chain him to a latrine for two days uh. until the box eventually pops out. And what was the document inside? 
Well, here's the thing, mate. It didn't contain any prestigious military secrets, but it was a rather innocuous note asking the French colonel if he'd observed anything worth repeating. <laughs> Look, they give him another sound beating, then they threaten him with execution, but they pretty much give up on him. So what does he do? Well, mate, the Prussians don't even notice when he escapes back to France. But I'm going to save that for another story. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, I've been waiting forever to do this, Paulie. What we're going to do next week, it's going to be Heroes and Howlers in Space! Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.